Welcome to episode two of our podcast on using AI, where we discuss the intersection of cutting edge technology, law, and today, moral values. In this episode, we'll explore AI ethics, the shaping of AI governance and ethical considerations. Uh, we'll take a look at some news. We will describe some crazy things that we've seen this week in the world of AI, which always feels like a month at the pace that things are happening. And I'm joined by my wonderful colleagues, ML research scientist, Alex papadopoulos Kofiatis and AI startup Hello. founder, Rafi Farouk. And my name's Alex Den, which I forgot to say. I'm just an AI gold rush nerd and loving the ridiculousness of the time that we find ourselves in. So we actually didn't do a little bit of an introduction for you guys last episode. So I'd like to start with that, if you don't mind, a little bit about perhaps yourself first, Alex Papp, and how you uh, became an ML research scientist and what interests you about the field. Oh, interesting. Wasn't ready for this. Let me improvise, I guess. Um, so hi, everyone. I'm Alex, I'm an ML research scientist, as uh, Alex the other Alex mentioned. Um, what interest me in the field? I guess from when I was studying, I, I remember reading a book about um, human consciousness and artificial intelligence. It was uh, it was called The Strange Loop, I think. And uh, as a child, I was amazed by that book and that inspired me to study artificial intelligence, I guess. Um, I'm showing my age maybe here, but when I did my undergrad, there was no real uh, artificial intelligence courses. But uh, as I progressed and uh, did a master's and PhD, um, I, I veered toward that uh, domain. Um, and I guess as a natural consequence of that, I'm working as a machine learning researcher. And I must say that uh, until now, I didn't think that machine learning was actually relevant for um, understanding how the human mind works and uh, human level um, reasoning and intelligence, I guess. But now I'm changing my mind with all these uh, large language models doing crazy things that we are not expecting them to do. So that's my introduction, I guess. Uh, as Alex T said, I'm uh, excited to be researching these things at this time where everything is massively changing, I guess. Nice. Awesome. It's funny, isn't it? A book, I think I credit myself for studying economics, um, The Rational Optimist and the other undercover economist. Uh, I think books have a pretty amazing impact on what we end up doing. Will we use books less in a world of AI? Anyway, moving on to Rafi, you want to explain why you created an AI startup that we now are working? Yeah, hi, everyone. Um, I'll just give a brief background, maybe not go too deep into background of Genie, perhaps. But um, I, I'm Rafi, and um, I studied philosophy and economics for my undergrad. And for my postgrad, studied machine learning and was very lucky to be taught by Google DeepMind because... They had just come out of the UCL um, neuroscience lab and also seemed to be intent on making sure everyone uses TensorFlow, uh, which was the uh, Google Python framework competing with Facebook's PyTorch. Um, so yeah, I think this the topic for today is fascinating for me on AI ethics because in philosophy, I specialized in ethics and obviously intersecting that with machine learning is quite fascinating. This explains why you're such a deep thinker. I've often wondered where that came from. But you, you're trained as a deep thinker, which makes me feel a little bit better if I can't keep up. All right, excellent. So that's a couple of intros. Uh, let's dive into news from this week. We try to, where we can, relate the news to the theme, theme being AI ethics. Um, Alex, would you like to go first? I think that uh, what I want to talk about is a very interesting article by the Washington Post analyzing a 
data set, a big Google data set uh, used to train large language models. So it's the Google C4 data set. I wonder if we can uh, post the link as well for everyone to follow in the chat, Alex. But uh, yeah, it's pretty interesting. It's not the data set used to train the GPT models because that is not public knowledge, but it is a big data set used to train large language models. And um the analysis is very interesting. There's a lot, for example, the, the, the biggest data set, if I remember correctly, that's uh, like the biggest sub part of that data set comes from, um, from patents and uh, patent text. But there's a lot of uh, kind of uh, scary bits to it as well. Like, for example, uh, a lot of um, hateful communities are in that data set or um, a big part of the kind of uh, religious websites is completely West focused. So there's a lot of Christian websites there, but the, a lack of uh, of other religions, I guess, which will um, fit in with what we'll discuss later, I guess, and bias in those data sets. But yeah, it's definitely very important to, I guess, um, look at the composition of the data sets that we are using to train models. And uh, it's very cool that... Uh, I found this um, article very interesting, which does exactly this. It's an analysis of uh, of data set composition. And am I right in saying, Alex, because uh, I love this article, you can type in the name of any website and see if it's included in that data set? I think you're right. Yeah. So it's uh, it's quite interactive, actually, which was another thing that I liked very much. And uh, you can you can check um, live whether the, the, the what percentage of the complete data set a specific uh, website uh, um, comprises, I guess. Yeah, so if anyone's listening, go ahead and play with that website and uh, um, read the article yourself. And there's a, um, isn't there a weird quirk where it shows the largest proportions and actually the largest contributor to the data set is Google's own patents? Presumably, Correct. so they yes. can say, don't reproduce these or do reproduce these. I'm not sure, but I just felt like that was... I was surprised to see that up there. I wasn't sure why that was top of the list. Not sure either, actually. Well, there's a lot of patent text, I assume, and uh, a lot of it will be neutral, kind of, no sentiments there, but... I'm not sure what to take of this and whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. Maybe it's like a, a, a neutral um, a neutral way to learn language itself rather than anything about the content, I guess. Or maybe they want to make sure the language models are very good uh, inventors. Has anyone tried, speaking of that particular point, has anyone tried um, coming up with an invention or writing a patent yet using uh, large language models? Not that I know, no. but that would be interesting. How would that work? Chat GPT. Yeah invent something for me it has to be something no one else has invented well i have to say i have asked questions like um gave me some background information about genie which is uh, of course our company and then saying if you could make some decisions that could completely pivot the company and 100x our valuation in the most minimal amount of time what would those decisions be <laughs> and um yeah unfortunately they're not that insightful they're kind of type of uh insights you'd expect to see on some sort of startup website giving you generic tips um, but i'm there okay funny that because that's probably exactly what fed the model yeah i can't believe you're trying to automate your own job rafi surely we need ceos and founders to still exist uh i don't do much <laughs> no i'm joking all right i'm gonna go on to uh, my piece of news um so it was reported i think about three weeks ago that snapchat had integrated ai so you could go into snapchat settings you could toggle an ai mode on and 
your top three or four like of your friends list there's there's things that are pinned one of them that would be pinned would be my ai which you could chat to right them obviously thinking well chatting to ai is all the rage everyone's gonna love this it's an arms race i've got to be first to it um everybody hates it and it's just an absolute epic fail and a flop and it actually contributes to the craziest thing i've seen this week um which we'll get to at the end although i was tempted to bring it up to this side of the podcast because it's it's quite dark um but basically it it's it's built off of uh gpt4 and it has custom built safety and security measures, except they very clearly don't work. And it's been exposed to, you know, tens of millions of teenagers. So uh, a grave concern and a commercial flop. So fascinating. There's a Business Insider article I'll punk in the show, show notes related to this. Here is uh, one of the reviews. Honestly, I think it's so stupid. There's no need for it. And it's ridiculous. And you can't get rid of it unless you pay for Snapchat Plus. So they're almost using it as like an anti-premium feature. Like AI becomes one of your friends unless you pay for actually that slot to be taken up by one of your genuine human friends. Uh, I think this just contributes to the idea that the speaking to AI is a bit a bit of the faddy side of AI at the moment. I think that's just because that's something that's working quite well. And we're not quite at like fully automated workflows and various things. Although, you know, we have discussed that. I don't know if either of you use Snapchat or if you've seen any of this fallout this week. I don't and I haven't used it and I don't know how good the quality is, but it also goes to show that with with a lot of AI stuff, it's not the UX side of it matters equally as much as the as the quality, right? So maybe it was a horrible model as well. I don't know. But even if it was good, if it was uh, if it was deployed in a way that's annoying to use and uh, actually hinders the user experience, then people are going to get annoyed with it, right? So you have to 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 make sure that uh, the UX is uh, is I don't know well planned, I guess, before deploying deploying any AI feature. Yeah, I think Alex P makes a great point, and I think that was you know, Sam. Martin has said before that was one of the great breakthroughs for GPT, not so much the model, but the UX in terms of making it instruct based or instruction instruction based. Um, but on your on your point, Alex, the uh I have to say on my uh personal Instagram, I did see a younger friend of mine um posting pictures of her talking to uh some sort of AI app chatbot friend. And uh that was interesting because clearly that's just pure kind of social um social value in terms of speaking to some sort of AI like a friend or a relationship. Um, I was reflecting that, yeah, in the evenings I use AI for things I need help with, but then lately it started to cross over to actually, what can I ask AI today? And that's, (laughs) that's a strange thought because it starts to move away from just utility to, um, I don't know, kind of social well-being, which is very, very strange. Uh, Yeah. It's very, very strange. Yeah. I, I'm not getting that value yet. I feel like if I had it in my WhatsApp and I could text it, which I know exists, then, you know, it's fine. But it doesn't take me long to just tap the saved page I have for OpenAI's playground on my phone and chat to it. But I'm not just having a conversation with it, partly because it's on your account, Rafi. So, uh, you know, I don't want you seeing the the nonsense things. I'm asking my AI besties. I'm surprised no one's pulled me up yet on um, (laughs) all the questions I've asked about how to set, like complex voltage questions about how to set up wires to create hardware synthesizers, because it's really good at answering those questions. And um, they're also not very typical sequence to sequence 
sequence AI questions in that I'm essentially asking the, the model to query manuals for these products. So it's kind of like a retrieval task, um, but it does fairly well in most cases. So uh, Rafi, do you have a piece of news for us or should we move on to talk about the theme? Um, I was going to just highlight some of the safety consideration uh, considerations that GPT-4 took into account, just because I think that was a major focus of GPT-4 compared to 3.5 um, and one of the major innovations, if you like. Uh, so I'll just give like a quick um, a quick rundown of the key safety considerations that they considered for the users, um, sort of the listeners. Um, so the system cards identified several safety considerations, which are producing convincing text that is subtly false, providing illicit advice, risky emergent behaviors, mil military applications, and such as the use or development um, or acquisition of nuclear weapons, radiological weapons, biological and chemical weapons, uh, privacy, hallucinations, harmful content, cybersecurity, and finally, over-reliance on the model. Uh, so that's a quick rundown of the key issues for GPT-4, according to OpenAI. And so we'll be able to tackle all of that in the next, I don't know, how long have you guys got? It's it's say, such yeah. a broad area. It's, it's mind-boggling, the amount, like the scope. And... I know this is slightly going into it, but the fact that these models have emergent capabilities means that it's hard to know when you add more parameters or you increase the size of a model, when it's going to be able to do one of these things well for the first time, that's really, really bad, right? And I think the classic example is, um, I forget which model it was, but there was a point at which it could instruct people on how to create nerve gas and no one knew that until after it had been shipped to 100 billion users. So that ability was there um, and the makers didn't know that that ability was there. And it's that sort of thing that I think is is really quite scary uh, and just an anecdote to you know send us on our way to talking about ethics. Yeah, and just to give the listeners an idea of what risky emergent behaviours mean, um, they include things like situational awareness, persuasion, and long horizon planning. So you can use your imagination there, I think. So I think that's a really helpful list. I think it sort of sends us on quite nicely to talking about this theme. So, so far, we've only spoken really about the negatives and a little bit of the crazy news. Um, AI will hands down deliver incredible advancements. I think we all know that, right? The positives are absolutely massive, which is why it can be quite hard when you start talking about AI ethics and potential downsides, harm, danger. People start to think, but it, it you could be in a room with someone who's who's arguing the opposite side and it feels like, you know, they're, they're gaslighting you or something, right? They're telling you that this, this world of AI is going to be fantastic and beautiful and perfect and so many problems are going to be solved. But we felt a similar way when social media existed, right? You could keep in touch with everybody and there were things that you could do that you couldn't do before what we didn't realize is all of the negatives that would come along with that and with 2020 hindsight we can see the damage that social media has done to some extent um and i guess the question is would we have done things differently if we knew what social media was going to unleash on society in terms of like the sexualization of children and polarization of political views and you know various things like this that are quite often credited uh to social media so for me there are all these amazing things that we know are coming there's a little bit of an arms race but how do we manage this technology transition as well as we can given that there are things many of which are in the list that you just referred to Rafi many of which we, we still don't know that are going to have a, a long-term impact on society and it's hard to put up those guardrails before we even know what we're guarding against yeah Thanks, Alex. I think uh, even just before we dive into that, I, I might um, 
just give the listeners kind of a high level taxonomy of the important categories of issues in AI ethics, then perhaps answer the question of, you know, what should we do now? Um, because ethics is a broad, broad topic. And somehow we need to parameterize this topic so that we can approach it systematically. Um, and obviously, uh, GPT for OpenAI gave some concepts there, but I might provide five high-level categories. The first being bias. Um, so, you know, I've frequently put in prompts asking pictures for pictures of lawyers, given we're an AI legal company. And almost always those pictures in the past, I'm not sure about the latest models, but they've been of uh, white males and very rarely of females. Uh, in fact, pretty much never. Um, so bias is obviously a big issue. Safety, which we've touched upon. Um, explainability, uh, copyright and IP. And then finally, quality. Um, and quality can go in both ways. It can be not good enough, especially in regulated settings like legal and healthcare, or it can be so good that it's deceiving and results in over-reliance. Yeah. So I, th I think that's a really strong list. And, you know, each one of those I think is worthy of an entire conversation. Would you count, would, would you say that that covers most of it? Um, the only thing that stands out to me that isn't included there is something like accountability. You know, who is accountable for YouTube's recommendation algorithms, for example? Is it the people generating the content? Is it the people writing the code? Um, yeah, who's responsible for the content itself? And there's some of those similar questions that relate to AI. And I think accountability is going to be a, a big one up there. You know, who is accountable for the recommendation that ChatGPT tells me to do something? Yeah, this is a question that I've often heard. And, you know, we've had the the benefit of, of speaking to regulators a lot at Genie, given we're in the legal sector as well. And the question often, often comes up, who's liable, who's accountable? Now, I think the base position to this question is that, and the base position to all these questions is that nothing changes in the law. So you know, if you write a very advanced software algorithm that, that doesn't learn, but it's an algorithm that's written in software, who's accountable for that? Well, it's whoever wrote it. It's the company that wrote it, the person that wrote it. And so why should anything change for AI? That should be the base position. Now, obviously, there is an argument that AI may be different because it's learned from different viewpoints and so on. But um, at least we have a base position to go off. We do as well. We have some initial guidance, I think, from the US uh, regulators, perhaps copyright uh, is a legal body there. And they, they published something two, three weeks ago stating that the output of the model is probably not going to be copyrightable, but the input is, right, the human prompt could be something that could be credited to the human. So in that case, if the prompt is the responsibility of me, the user, then surely the recommendation can't be entirely the responsibility of the creator of the algorithm, right? The liability can't entirely rest with them because I've prompted it. So a passive recommendation, I think, is fair. That's definitely solely the software but we're talking about software and human interactions that have never really been possible before. And do you still feel like that fits under the same category that we we're used to today, or that we have the regulations today? That you think that's suitable? Yes, the topic of copyright and IP is an interesting and complex one, and this has been around for many years, even pre-large uh, language models. And the best way to understand it is when people sample music, or at least a very familiar way for most people. If you sample a Britney Spears you know, segment, and um, just because we all love Britney Spears, right? Um, and uh, you, you sample it and you keep it exactly as it is, that's a copyright infringement. Whereas if you change the pitch, um, slightly twist the lyrics and slightly bend it, 
that should be fine. And where the line is, is a gray area. And again, the base position, all these things should be that the law doesn't change. So it should, in theory, be the same for AI. You know, if you take um, input information where there is not clear, unique IP, clear inventions, clear creative creations, then it's probably fine. Whereas if you take inputs that are extremely innovative and people spent time on it, one may argue it's just as much as a copyright infringement as it would be without AI. It's just that what changes, I guess, is the the scale at which these things are possible, right? And uh, um, anyone could take, for example, I don't know, all the Stephen King books and then ask the AI to write a new book in the same style, whereas before this was not possible, right? And and this might be a problem, maybe even more, even more in the in the image domain rather than the text domain, as I think we discussed in the previous podcast as well. But I'm not completely sure that the existing law is enough to handle all these new emerging use cases. Um, yeah, no, you're, I think Alex P, you've actually made a really astute point, which is it's a problem of scale. Um, so yeah, it's hard not to focus on the negatives in this discussion because there are many positives to AI and you know, education and healthcare and so on. But the best analogy, and I hope it's not too much of an unfortunate one, but the best analogy I've come up with so far is like regulating guns. And the reason that is, is copyright infringement is still as illegal as it was before. It's no more or no less illegal. In the same way, if you were to murder someone, um, with, I don't know, with your bare hands or something, that's obviously illegal. If you shoot someone with a gun, that's no more or less illegal. It's still very illegal. Um, perhaps the sentence might be more, I don't know. But the problem with a gun is you have more power than before. And it's the same with AI, you have more power before. It's a problem of scale. In the case of guns, you regulate both sides. You regulate the manufacturers of the guns and the users of the guns, which to your point, Alex, do you, we may see a future world where we regulate the producers of AI and who can access an AI that can produce nuclear weapons, let's say. Um, I'm generally not a huge fan of regulation, so I'm not necessarily promoting this, but I, I can see that future. I think a good example as well, um, just of existing regulation that regulates the usage, uh, would be know your customer. And we obviously have that in terms of people who can borrow money or can access certain financial services, uh, various other things. Sometimes it's to protect the bank's own backs. Of course, they like to make money, uh, but there is also an element of you know creating a trusted system. And uh, an example of this is, I believe, Meta released a large language model uh, and open sourced it, but put it behind a gated wall where you had to fill out a form to get access. So it's like very crude, sort of self-implemented, know your customer. Um, but it only took two days for it to find its way onto 4chan in its entirety. Uh, and I think that's a really good example of you know, it's quite hard to regulate the usage of things on the internet. And so I think a lot of people are pushing for regulation of the producers of AI as sort of like a, a, a really hard push. But the difficulty with that is it's going to be possible for anyone in their bedroom to create a large language model within a couple of years, I would have thought. I mean, some would argue that that's even possible today. You know, there's there's an absolute rush of uh, products being shipped to market that promise to give people the power to create their own versions of these models. So I think regulation on both sides 
is definitely subpar, but it's also not clear. You know, we don't have an answer to the problem. And I think it's going to, you know, we so I think we've touched on, on copyright and IP. We've touched a little bit on bias. And I think that's a great uh, example you've given. And it's a shame that all the pictures of lawyers that you ask AI to generate are of white males. Uh, do you want to move on to uh, safety, explainability or quality? And I get the feeling that we may do an entire episode on copyright and IP uh, in the future, seeing as that's a little bit in our wheelhouse. Yeah, e- either works. Um, I think explainability may be interesting, especially with Alex Papp's experience in you know, large language models and neural nets. Um, but it's also funny because I haven't heard so many, as much concerns on this topic as I have in the past. I'm not sure if you guys would concur with that or not. I think in general, I agree. And I think there's a good reason, actually. And it's that uh, in my view, at least, and my experience, this new generation of uh, language model actually actually is a massive leap in terms of explainability as well. Um, and just just for the for, for the listeners that uh, that are not necessarily sure what we mean here by explainability. So um, in the past, and still now, these uh, these machine learning models are a bit of a black box. So you give them a lot of data, you train them, but there's a massive network of weights inside, and you are not really sure what's happening and why they are providing the answers that they are providing. So um, you give it an input, it uh, it generates an output for you, but then it's very hard to explain why it generated that output for you. Sometimes you don't need to know why, but sometimes like, for example, in the field of medicine, you do. So if you uh, suggest a specific uh, drug to the user, or if you suggest a specific diagnosis, you need to be able to understand why that diagnosis was suggested in order to um, to troubleshoot as well, or in order to have some kind of uh, explainability trail that uh, that explains the decisions of the model. And so far, this was uh, this was a pretty hard task. It was a kind of a, a weak spot of that kind of uh, model, I guess. But uh, I think that with the newer large language models, you can actually ask them to explain why they produced a specific output. And they do a pretty good job at uh, at producing that, uh, that, that chain of thought that led to the answer that they are providing. Of course, it's not yet perfect. And there's always the trap of them providing an explanation that's actually uncorrelated to the, to the classification that they made, to the answer that they gave. But um, it is definitely a, a step in the right direction. And I find it very refreshing that now we can essentially take a peek into the thought process of those language models and uh, and, and understand why they are saying what they're saying. Of course, um, that's assuming we're you know we're assuming that when they explain what they're saying, they're explaining it from the perspective of how they came up with the decision rather than just completing the sequence of um... exactly which is yeah why i mentioned what i mentioned about uh, whether there's a correlation between the explanation and whatever they they say which might not be the case and in that case it's uh, dangerous so it's a good uh, good call rafi so what are the issues in terms of explainability 
Like where, where are the harms? Where are the dangers of a lack of explainability? If, if the answers are good, do we, you know, do we need, if, if the answers are correct, do we need someone to show they're working? I mean, I'll give you a trivial example from the perspective of a, of a developer or of a machine learning scientist that uh, maybe most of the times your model produces the correct answer, but then sometimes it's obviously wrong and you're trying to figure out why and uh, you're trying to fix it. And uh, if you don't have explainability, it's uh, impossible to that it makes it much easier if you understand the internal mechanisms of the model and why the model came to the conclusion that it did right and then you can work towards fixing it if you don't uh, if you cannot explain then it's very hard to change the model behavior as well that's from one perspective and the other perspective is from a regulatory perspective i guess um in which you you are uh, you are asked to assess a specific language model for safety but then it's sometimes very hard to do that without knowing the internals of how the model works or without understanding and the black model a black box model with low explainability is a problem in that case because uh, you cannot really verify that uh, the model is coming to the conclusions for, for for the right reasons i guess so two anecdotes here the first is that I've heard that one of the main reasons why China hasn't released lots of large language models is that they can't currently control the fact that these models talk about Tiananmen Square, which I think is is mad, right? And so the second point is, if explainability exists, doesn't it also open up potentially harmful manipulation of the workings of a model? So although you can, as a developer, increase the accuracy and the performance of the model that you're using if we make models let's say large open source models uh incredibly explainable then does it not open up the ability for people to cause more damage because they can point it in the wrong directions or set the rails in a bad way i think i would tend to suggest that um uh kind of the the flip side of the coin is what you're getting with explainability is transparency and control. If you, uh, yeah, let's say these models become super powerful in the future and we may have other concerns like safety concerns, explainability gives us the promise that if we can know why the AI is making these decisions and these recommendations, we should be able to, in theory, tweak it to fix those problems. I think that's kind of the the promised land of explainability. And if I was to try and visualize this, I mean, I've play, played around with a bunch of search tools like Algolia, for example, where you can just input heaps and heaps and heaps of text, and then you can change the weightings of things so that when you type something in, you get the result that's most accurate. It feels like that's a really crude way to try and understand explainability because it's obviously a lot more that there's more dimensions than just search going on here or it feels like there's more dimensions than just a basic textual search and, and matching of strings right correct yeah i guess that's a that's a good way to to put it um regarding your question about whether uh, highly explainable models would uh, would allow for dangerous behavior as well i guess there's a distinction between explainability and suggestibility i'm making this up so i don't know if it's uh, if it's an actual term but uh, i guess it would be dangerous if using language like linguistic prompting you can get the model to produce any kind of unsafe output for you like the examples that we you were giving with uh, how how to build a nuclear weapon in your kitchen or something like that right um 
but explainability i feel is is different it just means that whatever output we get there's there's a there's a trail of um there's a trail of uh, i guess thoughts in a way or like a reasoning process that explains it right and then um we can see that when the model produces something this is why it produced itself yes it is a bit of a gray area but in the same way that is a gray, it is a gray area with humans as well, right? Let's take humans as an example. When when you ask them why they did something, they can produce like uh, some kind of justification. But then it's very hard to say whether that justification is uh, um, is just post fact essentially, and they're just uh, trying to justify their behavior, right? Uh, or whether that's what actually led that behavior. It's the same with the models, but it's the, the best that we have, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a pretty complex topic, I guess. Yeah. In, in the past, there were kind of different types of explainability because people use this term as a buzzword. Um, we actually went to the Europe's 2019 conference, I believe it was, um, in Canada, which is one of the for those who don't know, it's one of the um, probably the most famous machine learning academic conference at the moment, mostly based on neural nets. And that year, it's funny because different organizations had different terms for explainability. Like some uh, organizations or academics would call it interpretability, for example, or interpretation. Um, but and there were different ways to tackle it. Technically, you could ask the model for an explanation, or you could try to um, understand the contribution of the inputs to producing the outputs. Um, and then there are these algorithms like Lime, for example, which were used a lot in NLP that try to do that. Um, there's there's approaches like perturbations, uh, where you get the model to produce slightly different outputs, and then you measure the perturbation on the model weights. Um, but yeah, apologies if this is going too deep for the listeners, but hopefully this gives you a flavor of the different types of explainability because um, it's really an umbrella term that can mean a number of different things, both technically and to a potential user. And then we have safety and quality. I feel like safety is the natural next step from the explainability discussion. Either of you want to start us off on that scary topic? I feel like I need to, uh, <laughs> I feel like it's like a separate microphone, which is the the fear-mongering microphone that it's now time for. Is There's a lot of fear-mongering in AI, isn't there? And, and this is like the topic to fear-monger about. Can, can you try giving us a fear-mongering voice, please. <laughs> I, I only have uh, one tone, I think. Something to improve upon for next time. Come with more tones of voice. If only AI could mask your voice. I mean, soon enough, it will be able to generate my voice and my video quite easily. Well, I, so um, I don't know if you, are you guys familiar with Tristan Harris and the Center for Humane, uh, Humane Technology? He's the chap who was behind. He used to work at Facebook and didn't like what he called the race to the bottom of the brainstem, which is what all of the social media supercomputers do, because whenever you open social media, there's a digital avatar of you sat in a supercomputer, and these supercomputers are showing you the thing that is most likely to hold your attention, create engagement, uh, and feed the machine, right? Um, just two weeks ago, they released a video, which I think is, is fantastic. I recommend it to everyone. Um, called the AI dilemma. And what they go into here is is just quite quite concerning. Um, and there's a lot of doom and there's a lot of scariness in that video. Um, they're effectively trying to like shake the system and be like, you guys need to pay attention because this is scary. So there's a lot of a lot of doom saying in that. Um, but they they also say what we said at the very beginning of this, which I think is important, is you know, we're not saying that there aren't lots and lots and lots of incredible benefits coming. It's just that there are also 
unintended consequences of these technologies coming. Um, so yes, I, I can pick a particular element of safety from that talk, but I think um, maybe I'll wait for the right time for it. I don't know. I, I'm keen for you to try and introduce safety uh maybe without a doom a silly doom voice um and and with a with a sensible voice of technological progress how about that i'm putting on my sensible voice of technological progress if anyone's listening uh comment on on our linkedin and tell tell me if it's uh sensible enough um but no i was thinking of a uh, i was thinking of i wanted to improve upon my gun analogy because that's a bit negative i think i have a more neutral analogy which can introduce the safety topic which is um it's more like a superpower and so let's say you have the ability to teleport anywhere you know would you stop everyone from doing that immediately um Probably not. But, you know, there are benefits to that. You can get to work instantly. If you're having a, a baby and you're a mother, you can get to the hospital hospital really quickly. Um, but of course, there are you can misuse it. And I think the analogy is kind of similar to AI. It's, it's more like a superpower. Um, so yeah, with that said, maybe I'll hand over to to Alex P and see if he has any thoughts on on AI safety from that perspective. I mean, I like I like your analogy of uh, teleportation because it. It is similar, right? And I guess as a as a human species, our lives have been massively changed, I guess, in many different points by technology, right? And it's just another example of uh, of technology, but that does not mean that it's not dangerous as well. And if we all had teleportation, I don't think it would be possible or um, ethical to try and change that or limit the usage, right? But then we'd, uh, we'd come up with legislation around it or uh, social norms that would minimize the risk, I guess. And I guess that's what th that's what needs to be done in this case as well, right? And it will be done and it has been done for, for a lot of other things. I guess that uh, thinking out loud here, but one, one thing that's different this time is the, the rate of progress, I guess. Um, Technology is moving forward so quickly that uh, the rest of society hasn't had time to catch up with that and come up with new social norms and uh, legislation and everything else that needs to be around that technology to, to make sure that it's uh, safe. So that's that's a scary thing uh, for me. That's uh, I guess I'm not I'm not answering your question though. But uh, yeah, when we talk of safety, I I feel that it's like such a huge um, topic as well that I don't know where to uh, where to start from. So maybe we should start by mentioning like some examples of what the safety considerations uh, would have around uh, around AI and large language models. So I can offer three, if you like, and then you can pick and choose Sounds from good. these sort of anecdotes that are reality. The first is the one from the video I just mentioned where they say that you now only need three seconds of somebody's voice for an AI to then be able to synthesize it accurately and effectively. So someone could phone up, uh, you know, your daughter and say, um, you know, and they're like, oh, sorry, wrong number or whatever. And you've managed to get three seconds of their voice and then phone up, uh, you know, you with your daughter's voice saying, I've forgotten my social security number or I've forgotten you know, this important piece of information is there any way you can find it for me. And that I think is, is incredible and scary. And I think it leads into the idea that this is the year that content-based identification and authentication systems die because AI manages to, you know, do that. And I think when I was discussing this with my wife and the fact that I, I was suddenly terrified, I said, it's going to bring us back into rooms together 
in person more because there'll be a point where we trust what we see on screens less and less. And so nothing will be able to replace just being in a room, having screens off and having a real conversation. Because when you open a screen, you you know, you don't know, like Rafi was talking about, he didn't know whether he was talking to a human or a bot. Um, and we're at that point now where voices and avatars and filters on top of those avatars can ultimately create someone who's very convincing from just three seconds of their recorded voice. Um, the second safety consideration for you is the idea that uh, because filters are so good and deep fakes are so good, um, and there's a lot of conversation about whether TikTok should be banned in the US. Um, an example of what damage TikTok could do if they wanted to be malicious is they could ship a Biden and Trump voice and face filter to absolutely everyone that was so convincing that you didn't know whether you were watching Biden or Trump in reality anymore, right? And it would completely undermine democracy. And that's something that is completely feasible tomorrow, right? Um, so those those two, I think, are examples of safety. Um, I think the other one is just in terms of the age at which people can access these things and not knowing the content that they can trigger or pull out of them. Um, I, you know, I think that's going to be uh, quite concerning for a lot of people. So I think there's a, there's a general feeling that large language models could or should be considered unsafe uh, to be released to the public until they're proven safe. And that's obviously like the pessimists, the cynics view. Um, and this is still the early days of these models, but within a year, they'll be powerful enough that I think that's quite a, a reasonable approach. Um, so take which one of those three you like, if that sets you on a segue for safety. I mean, I, I like all of them and I think the they topic. can be they can be bunched into the same kind of bucket for me uh, in the the wider bucket of uh, safety and it's both uh, I guess disinformation broad and general kind of uh, social um, upheaval I don't know uh, how, how to put that but uh, yeah this is this is pretty scary and it's definitely an aspect of uh, safety right and personally for example I'm, I'm quite concerned by um, the usage of large language models to influence behavior and that falls for me under the same bucket because um they especially the latest uh, iterations of them seem to be very 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 capable at producing very convincing language with like incorrect or hallucinated content right so you could feed it any information that you want that's incorrect and uh, and have it uh, produce it in a very like uh, convincing way that uh, would make it very hard for people reading it to tell if it's correct or incorrect and then what's scary about it is that in opposition to other uh, safety considerations we will not see the effects of uh, of those misinformation campaigns soon or they will not be very apparent right they might be working in the background and influence society in a in a negative way but without us immediately knowing about them and uh, figuring out how how to deal with them i guess um, but yeah that's definitely one big bucket of safety concerns not not sure if you want to say anything about this bucket, Rafi? I think what I'd add, um, in order to not just scaremonger, but at the same time also not downplay the importance of these serious considerations, I'd offer a potential, not a solution, but an avenue for a solution. Now, the good thing in our favour is that all queries to the AI are recorded. And even when AI has become proactive rather than reactive, which is a whole 
thing in itself, um, their actions will all be recorded. So that provides a ray of light because we can see what they're doing and potentially stop them from doing malicious things. And so the avenue for regulation perhaps maybe to think about uh categorizing actions categorizing queries and responses um so we're already starting to see that um with banning certain types of queries but you know if you start talking about murder or nuclear weapons these things get put in the category that's regulated whereas yeah if you're trying to put together some hardware synthesizers then yeah let a guy do his thing um, so that looks quite promising for for regulation. Do we think there are any countries or any areas that are ahead of the game here on safety, or any companies that are being proactive? I, I know, for example, that the there's a thirty to one ratio. I think of people building larger models versus people who are ultimately there for safety reasons um so i it feels like that you know there, there's thousands of people out there who are you know their entire job is doing what we're discussing um that must be trickling through some legislation or regulation somewhere personally i think the issue is in the past the topic of ai safety has not really been seriously considered considered in my view um and mostly it's been non-technical kind of uh talking heads even though we are being talking heads here too perhaps but um, people don't really understand the architectures of models defining these things. Whereas now, what we really need is technical people linking up with um, political scientists, philosophers, and policymakers and coming together. If I may, on that topic, um, I have a bit of a, a thought experiment for both of you that's uh, simple to follow. But um, yeah, as we move towards the end, it might be interesting to bring in some philosophy and some ethics or uh, some philosophy into the ethical discussion. Take um, it away. I'm intrigued. Yeah. So I have this thought thought experiment for you and maybe the, the listeners can, can follow, which is let's say you could rank the intelligence of every human on a scale from one to a hundred. And currently the most intelligent people in the world are at 10. Um, and the average person maybe is, at, I don't know, five or something. And so if there was uh, a pill you could take that moved you moved one person from five to 100 should that be illegal for that one person do you mean five to ten no i mean five to a hundred so like insane five, five to a hundred a hundred being you're like ten times more intelligent than the smartest human on the planet yeah but there's only one of those pills right there's so only one. one human will get to take it so we'll create a super servant for one generation essentially yeah i think Yes, but you'd want to keep an eye on them. <laughs> I don't know, that sounds like a really stupid answer, but I feel like I, I get a feeling like I know where this thought experiment is going and the AI is the super savant here. Um, and if it's a human, it's different, right? Because a human has these these human limitations. And so it feels quite innocent. You know, you just have like a really intelligent human who you would go and ask questions to. You, you know, it's like when a kid goes and talks to their granddad and they hear all of these stories from the past and they think that their granddad is like the most intelligent, most fascinating person they've ever met or something. So it would be like every member of the human race gets an epic granddad. And I think that is amazing. So, so yes, they're giving a human the pill for your thought experiment. Okay, interesting. So just to clarify, give them. Sorry, go ahead, traffic. Uh, no, just just quickly to clarify, um, there's only one of these pills, right? Only one person can take it. But yeah, go ahead, Alex P. I'm curious of your view as well. And there's a second part to this, which I'll mention in a moment. It's it's not exactly of you, but uh, I was going to say that maybe if you give one person a pill and they become a hundred, then they can make more of those pills as well, right? And feed everyone. <laughs> 
<laughs> nice, nice. It's like that. We limit. made it once. We can make it again, unless it came from aliens or something. Yeah. Um, okay, but let's say your your decision is in Alex D's case, it's fine. It's legal, and we give that one human the power. Maybe we watch over them. Now, let's say there was an unlimited supply of these pills. Does your viewpoint change at all? Should it? still be legal so everyone becomes an epic granddad <laughs> yeah everyone goes to 100 yes. just yes. saying it should still be just as legal absolutely i think so it levels a playing field in terms of i mean it's it it's a pill can people untake the pill if they don't like what they experience maybe i suppose i mean regardless of whether it's legal or not it sounds like it would be unavoidable right people would take those pills and then the rest of the people would need to take those pills as well just to catch up i guess what are the like what's what are the downsides here when would it not be a good idea to take those pills i guess if taking those pills meant that humans destroy the earth or something right that's what uh, what they select they choose to do with their super intelligence yeah i suppose to kind of just reveal the idea behind the thought experiment is, um, is the problem of AI safety a problem of going from 10 to 100? Like, is it a problem of ability that massively increases capability? Or is it a problem of uh, giving everyone access, even those people who unfortunately are, you know, would use it for bad purposes? I like to think there are more good people than bad people in the world. So I generally think that everyone should get the good stuff. Like it. I think that's a great uh, positive note to uh, close that thought experiment. No, I'm not sure if my my note will be positive here, but uh, I think in a similar way to the pills that it's unavoidable. So we need to make sure, like to uh, I don't know, contain the fallout essentially, and make sure that we steer this uh, this to to, to, the, to the best possible um, sequence of events, I guess. So do it, but carefully because we cannot not do it in a way. I have the same feeling for for um, AI, by the way, that uh, it's unavoidable, but we need to be thinking about how to do it in order to. Um, to minimize the risks, I guess. All right. Well, the only area we haven't tackled, because, you know, we've solved all the problems now, so good work, everybody, is quality. I don't know if you want to touch on quality before moving on to the end segment of the show. You know, it's um, it's actually kind of funny because I wrote this list of taxonomy um, a few years, two, three years ago, uh, like I said, when we we're speaking to regulators about AI safety, and the notion of quality has just completely changed because the yeah, the quality of these algorithms is just so much better. Um, I don't have a huge amount of, of value to add here, except to say, uh, you know, now that you know, in in highly regulated and um, risky industries, the risk of hallucinations, as, as Alex P mentioned, are, are is higher, and the opposite case of when quality is so high that it tricks you into believing that it's true um, can also be an issue. I guess there's two things I want to mention. One is that it, like all of those domains are interconnected, I guess, and the, the issue of quality is very closely related to the to the, um, to the risks we talked about, uh, uh, to the issue of safety, rather, sorry. And uh, yeah, we need to make sure when we build systems using this AI and use them for real world purposes, that we take the issue of quality into account, that uh, we know that the system's output will not always be perfect. We know that there's hallucinations, but uh, we need to um, 
to deploy uh, models in a way that accounts for those hallucinations, I guess, and that gives us a way to control those uh, hallucinations. Um, and as Rafi mentioned, of course, it's more important in uh, high-risk domains, such as legal tech, I guess, or um, or healthcare. I forgot the second thing that I wanted to talk about, though, so maybe I'll, I'll leave it there. But uh, ah, I guess that the, the other thing I did want to talk about is uh, this, uh, this kind of um, strange phenomenon where the better your models get, the better the accuracy of your models get, in a way, the more dangerous they are. Because if the models are good 8% of the time, then no one is going to rely on them, right? You'll always double check the output of the model for factual accuracy. But if the models are good like 99% of the time, then you'll get used to them providing correct answers and gradually increase trust in them and uh, and be less diligent about checking their output. And then, especially in high-risk industries, that's where the 1% will come to bite you, I guess, and... Um, and lead to a to an unwanted outcome. I don't know how to solve that, um, but it is it is an interesting phenomenon, I guess. It reminds me of um, yeah. I hope people don't mind me just just plugging some of the some of the work we've done at Gina here. But um, we did give advice to the Law Policy Commission uh, a few years ago on AI algorithms and justice and. The classic example of uh, self driving cars comes up because the question is if there's accidents, if the rate of accidents is less than with humans, uh, but you can't explain, you know, why and where the accidents came from, is it worse or better than um, not having the AI? And I think a similar type of question applies here, and it probably comes back to um, explainability and accountability and provenance. So it's classic. Look, you studied ethics, you're giving us more questions than answers. It's very frustrating. I would just like answers next time, please. Well, I feel like the main achievement for me in this podcast is if anyone's watching on YouTube, um, my background image is uh, the prompt I used to create. It was an image that if you look at, you reach enlightenment <laughs> and it's a set of concentric circles. I've managed to keep my head, head in the center of the circle for most of the podcast. <laughs> I have been admiring that. I think hands down, I mean, it, it's 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 the best AI generated image I think I've seen because it just looks like it's I don't know some beautiful artwork. I and agree. You have had a little bit of a halo effect this episode. <laughs> it gives me more power. <laughs> All right. Apologies for anyone hearing drilling. I have building work going on still. No. Ah, amazing. All right. Well, sorry for the pointless note for uh, anyone listening. Right. Craziest thing we saw this week. I would like Alex Pat to go first because I saw this video yesterday and it yeah yeah I'll, I'll let you explain it I'll let you explain it. I just I it's one of the few things where I've actually laughed out loud uh like looking at my phone I am not completely sure how to explain it without people seeing it. I don't think they will understand but uh, yeah the craziest thing I saw this week is an AI generated pizza commercial um we might include a link for people to, to go and see, but uh, I think that all parts of that commercial were generated by AI and then put together by a human. So 
GPT-4 uh, generated the script for the commercial, and then there's a tool that generated the video for this commercial, and it manages to be pretty good at looking like a commercial, but falling into the uncanny valley of being like quite scary at the same time as well. And I think the effect is like just just great. So um, if you haven't seen it, go go watch it and be be scared. I think. An interesting tidbit is that uh, many people thought that uh, this is purely human generated because exactly the language in the commercial is not great and modern AI systems tend to produce um, perfect language. But I think that the creator asked the model to uh, to use kind of bad language or not well-formed language in order to, to, to make the video more, more funny, I guess. So this is why the... The language is not perfect. So it, it's also it's quite jittery, isn't it? I presume that wasn't my phone. Um, or is it is it quite jittery when you're watching it? It is a bit. Yeah, it is a bit. You get yeah, the so it's, VHS it's that, effect it, of it. You do. It's it's quite uh, it's quite Tarantino um, in feel, and ah, uh, it's just the moment where they're actually eating pizza is is horrifically uncanny valley. That that's like towards the side of AI. There's like open mouth AI pizza going in. And then the mouth is chewing and AIs do not do good chewing mouths with food in. That it is one of the most disgusting sights I've ever seen. It's but the rest like of the ad that up to that point was, was quite and... good. Oh, oh, it's so grim. I think, Rafi, you're going to have to watch this, aren't you? I, I honestly don't know if I if I have the urge to watch it, actually. <laughs> he claims he created an entire commercial. Like, Bear in mind that some of the bits are kind of gross, but some of the bits are actually very impressive proof of concepts. Um, it's just the way it's been put together is quite uncomfortable to watch. Um, but created in three hours, all AI-generated video, it's impressive. And uh, my, my craziest thing this week is I, I mentioned Cool Sam last week. Well, Cool Sam has now become call Annie and you can now have a full-on video call live video call with an AI ask them anything and it's as if you're just you know doing FaceTime or a WhatsApp video call or whatever with a avatar and the avatar is quite convincing not so convincing that you don't think that they're an AI but I'm sure it won't be long until you could pick up the phone and chat to any AI you design and ask them anything yeah I, I think my, my crazy uh thing that I've seen is just Similar to yours, Alex, just more of a general one, which is um, just seeing people in my daily life, you know, friends and, and old schoolmates and whatnot, using AI for any sort of purpose, um, whether that's a friend on Instagram using it to just speak to someone socially or uh, kind of consultants becoming overnight experts in <laughs> in how to use AI. Um, and it's it's just quite surreal because if anyone who's listening, you know, whatever job you do imagine if overnight everyone's talking about your your particular industry which used to be quite specialist um which i think is really cool it's great to see so many people involved in the industry um but also very surreal yeah and i think uh actually leads on quite nicely to what i believe we should talk about next week um which is well first off i i used it for a real like functionality improvement which is I, I used it to create some jql so i could export some data from mix panel and then i also used it to create me a, a complex google sheets formula so i didn't have to type it all in which is so lazy but it actually did it really well i told it the name of the sheet i told it the name of the cells and it just 
spat out the formula and I pasted it in and it worked perfectly. And likewise, Mixpanel, JQL, I said, uh, okay, that's clearly too much data. I want to filter it just for these events. And then it, it filtered for just those events. And I didn't know, I didn't have to search for documentation on how to use filters in JQL. I just spoke, I, I just typed in natural language and I got the response. And I, I just think it's it was so satisfying um, and quite scary at the same time but in a wonderful way that makes me feel like there's no limit to my productivity, which is quite concerning as a feeling because I don't know why my to-do list only gets bigger if I'm getting more productive. <laughs> yeah, anyway, I don't know if that's just my feeling, um, but it, it brings on to what I'd love to talk about in the next episode, which is AI's impact on the future of work. And we could talk about uh, a little bit about what we do, um, but I, you know, there, there are fascinating point solutions as well as platforms uh, to help tackle a lot of the everyday activities that people have uh, on a daily basis in uh, a business context. I do think we have seen a lot of consumer AI over the last few weeks. And I think a lot of people, you know, if you think about the classic sort of Gartner hype cycle, um, AI is, is sort of towards this top area. Supposedly, we're going to be going to the trough of disillusionment soon. I don't see that happening for some time. I still think there is a lot of productivity wins to come, especially in the business space. So I'm, I'm really keen to hear both of your thoughts. I know, Alex, you have some fantastic experience um, from healthcare company you worked at before, Babylon, right? Um, and Rafi, you've always got good thoughts on this. So very keen to hear if you guys are excited about this theme. And then we can, um, we can have a think about what we can chat about next week. I'll make sure to bring my halo, give me extra power, plus my fear-mongering microphone. <laughs> the two new props that I've acquired during this podcast. Sounds good. It feels like this podcast will be a rapid journey to acquire artifacts too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. AI artifacts. But yeah, sounds super exciting, Alex. Looking forward to next week's uh, podcast. Great. Well, thank you both. We'll plonk uh, links to uh, everything we've mentioned. You definitely have to watch the pizza commercial if you haven't, unless you're driving. Definitely don't watch it while you're driving because you'll probably just throw up out the window. And uh, we'll see you all next week. Half an hour. See you all next week, everyone. Thank you.